Welcome to the Senior Story Hour, where we share poems, stories, and observations of life written by the Franklin Senior Center Writers Group. I'm Peter Jay. Join us now as we share and enjoy musings and moments as told by the authors themselves. Let's meet our writers for today's program. Hi, I'm Sue Wade. Bill Wiley. Pat Winiarski. Carol Belcher. Alice Judge. Joe Ewald. Faith Flatity. Okay, Sue, I think we are in business. I think we are, too. We have a nice small group. It is summertime, so people are on vacation. Um, however... And thank you to all the stalwarts who did come here today to share your stories. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, we are in the process of getting organized for a fall either tea, mm-hmm. either the end of October or the 1st of November. Nice. Um, the booklets have been printed up and are at the Senior Center waiting our tea. Nice. And we're thinking with the cook who I have gone over the menu that maybe it would be a nice thing to do a high tea with hats and gloves. And Well, that lets me out right there. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we would... Advertise it as a high tea. Nice. Our fa- first reading would be Faith Flaherty. The last radio show closed with a piece explaining creativity. St. Paul was used as an example of a creative spirit being utilized. It was claimed that St. Paul was a phony. On the road to Damascus, Saul, a.k.a. Paul, who was an Ebonite, suddenly got a brilliant idea on how to win fame and fortune. Instead of fighting the followers of Jesus the Nazarene, he would join them and make money off of them. This claim sparked my creative juices, because this depiction of Paul is contrary to the popular depiction of Paul. Historically, Paul is one of the most important figures in Western civilization. His letters give us knowledge of the culture politics, and religion of the first centuries, and his biography in the Acts of the Apostles makes him a hero. That being said, attacks against Saul have been surrounding him ever since he took that fateful journey to Damascus and became Paul. Usually, claims against Christian heroes pop up around Christian holidays. Movies, magazine articles, books, social media, etc., will promote these ideas to sell their products. You will hear that Paul was a Greek and became circumcised to win the favor of a Jewish girl, or Paul was a false apostle, or Jesus was a twin, Jesus was married, Paul was married, etc. All this is nothing new. Some people like to rain on parades. Wait for Thanksgiving when you hear that we shouldn't be giving thanks for democide. It should be a day of mourning. Our Columbus Day should be renamed Indigenous People Day. However, this is not my subject. My inspiration was the ending of last month's reading with the statement, and that's the truth. What? (laughs) One thing everyone can agree on is that Paul was not stupid. If what the Ebionites say about Paul making money off the followers of the New Way is true, then he must have been stupid. Jesus was poor. His apostles were poor, and the people they attracted were mostly poor. It wouldn't have taken Paul long to figure out that there was no money to be made going around preaching Jesus' gospel. Paul was physically persecuted. He was beaten, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, 
imprisoned and had to work as a manual labor to support himself. Where's the money? And this isn't Paul's personal claims. Paul's life was witnessed by many others. Barnabas, Silas, Mark, Timothy, Luke, plus many, Corinthians, Ephesians, Athenians, Romans, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, Thessalonians, Hebrews, etc. Personally, I think common sense would tell you that Paul was legit. Let's say Paul did create a scheme, as the Ibionites claim. Then where did Ananias get the command to go to Paul and baptize him? Where did that come from? Let me relate the event. Paul's in Damascus. For three days, he's trying to make a sense of what happened to him. Now, there was in Damascus a certain disciple named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. But Ananias answered, Lord... I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to the saints in Jerusalem. And here, too, he has authority from the high priest to arrest all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Ananias, go, for this man is a chosen vessel to me to carry my name among the nations and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias probably exclaimed, Are you kidding me? No way, hey Zeus, because Saul would have killed Ananias. So where did this idea come from, if not from God himself? Another factor is that the other apostles accepted Paul. Peter and Paul did argue, as teachers do, about dietary laws and circumcision, but Peter argues as one with a respected colleague. Paul was accepted as a bona fide teacher. And what about Paul's miracles? A man in Lystra with crippled feet who was cured? A possessed girl who was being exploited by her masters and Paul freed her? The boy who fell from a great height and thought dead? In fact, Paul's miracles were so numerous that people just touched Paul with their handkerchiefs to take to others who were diseased, and they were cured. Where did Paul get this authority, if he were a false apostle? Finally, this Paul message itself. Paul always taught the Old Testament and Jesus' gospel. No one said differently, especially not the other apostles. Paul lived in the same time as the other apostles, and they vouched for Paul as specially chosen and anointed. That being said, Paul does have his opponents, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, the Hebrews, the Ebionites, and some other Gnostics. The animosity between these groups and Paul was mutual. The Herseologist Origen said the name Ebionites is derived from a Hebrew word meaning poor. The early Christians, especially Paul, had a field day with this name, saying that the Ebionites were poor in understanding. Unfortunately, the Ebionites faded from history, and all we know of them is from their opponents. The Ebionites were Christian followers of Jewish laws. No wonder the Ebionites and Paul butted heads. The Ebionites insisted on circumcision, and Paul taught that circumcision wasn't necessary. The Ebionites also taught that Jesus was born as the eldest son of the sexual union of Jesus and Mary. But the subject of this essay isn't the Ebionites' beliefs. 
Let's just say that Paul and the Ebionites were at opposite ends of the spectrum. As I mentioned previously, sources refuting our accepted iconic ideas are nothing new. You will hear new gospel found, Jesus' grave found, even Jesus' body found. This is not new. Actually, nothing is new. Those who don't know history repeat it. There were many, many writings that didn't make it in the Bible. Who knows what their selection process was? Why wasn't my story accepted in that magazine? Why wasn't I hired? Why didn't I win that scholarship? Selection is arbitrary. I'm sure if a gospel were written by a woman, it was thrown out. So there went the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Acts of Thecla. Maybe a source was just repeating what was already said. And for sure, some writings were just crazy. Others, like the Ebionites, were probably considered heretical. The early church fathers who collected the different sources to collate the Bible couldn't accept everything. Look how big the Bible is now. But these sources are still around and will surface every now and then, especially around Christian celebrations, as newly, quote, newly found, end quote. They are not new. They are old sources that weren't chosen to be in the canon of the Bible. Sorry, history is written by the winners. And thus today's Western culture is shaped by the societal ideas and the ethics of Paul and the other apostles of Christ. One last thought regarding the Ebionites and Paul is expressed in a famous metaphor expressed by Jesus himself, warning us against false prophet and how we can identify them. It is Matthew 7.15. By their fruits you shall know them. Fruits represent the outward manifestation of a person's faith and behavior and works. Faith of the Ebionites, it doesn't exist anymore. Faith of Paul, one of the most influential people in human history in shaping Christian thought. Behavior. Behavior of the Ebionites, they were rejected by Jews and rejected by early Christians. Behavior of Paul, performed miracles, martyred for the faith. Works of the Ebionites, never popularly accepted and eventually died out. Works of Paul, 13 of the New Testament, 27 documents of Paul's letters, and the book of Acts is his biography, which adds up to half of the New Testament. So be it. And that's the truth. <laughs> Nicely done. Very good, very good. So our next reader is Joe Ewald. Hi, I'm Joe Ewald, and the name of my story is A Cool Place to Visit When You Take Your Summer Vacation. Excuse the pun. <laughs> now that summer has been upon us since June 21st, thank God, we are right in the middle of vacation season. When you first start to plan your summer vacation getaway, you have to start at the beginning, of course, and select your destination, depending on how much money you have. There are many selections inside the country or outside of it. If you want to go outside the United States, one good possible choice would be England, as my older brother Barry would attest. Barry and his family have been going to that part of Great Britain for the last five or six years. One of those years, they decided to go to Wiltshire, which is home 
to Stonehenge. If you have never heard about the legend of Stonehenge, I will try to tell you about it. First of all, experts has classified it as a prehistoric network of menhirs or standing stone monuments. One of the many characteristics about the place is the iconic trilithions, or better known as the hanging arches, which, by the way, were built roughly about 5,000 years ago when my brother Barry decided to visit Stonehenge. I asked him if he felt anything different than normal. I asked him this question because of the history of the place. My brother told me there is something that you can't see affecting the way his body is feeling, like he was surrounded by a paranormal force. One of the curiosities is how did the massive stones get there in the first place? Some of the stones weigh up to 50 tons, and the stones were transported as far as 140 miles. One question you have to ask is how could ancient Britons possibly move and lift and precisely place these multi-ton stones in concentric circles? Stonehenge is considered an engineering marvel. It has also been recognized by the United Nations as a World Heritage Site. Stonehenge is cordoned off to the public by a low fence in order to protect against falling stones. But if you have the power, you can arrange a private tour outside public hours that will allow you to directly go up to the stones, which my brother did. One of the mysteries there that may explain some of the things about Stonehenge is the ancient graveyard that sits there. Archaeologists have discovered an ongoing culture dating back to 5000 BC and as early as 1500 BC. There are many theories on how the place came to be. One of the most popular ones is that it was created by aliens. <laughs> One of the reasons that that could be possible is the position of Stonehenge corresponding with the two yearly equinoxes which marked the beginning of spring and fall. For those who don't know what the word equinox means, I being one of them, <laughs> it is the time when the sun crosses the plane of the Earth's equator, making night and day all over the Earth of equal length. On these days, the rising sun aligns with the archways in which the people back then may have used those two days to reap and sow their harvests. They also could have used this as a calendar to help track the sun to indicate which season it was. Another theory, believe it or not, and held very credible by some, is that Merlin the Magician, the King Arthur, proposed building a monument to mark the graves of knights 
who had died in the war between the Britons and the Saxons. Merlin, with his magic, maybe have created Stonehenge. My personal feeling on this whole thing is that, first of all, the people that were in the graveyard were buried with animals, which means there were sacrifices made to honor a higher power. Plus, it took thousands of years to build. I think way back in deep B.C., there was a primitive cult that that worshipped some... Yeah, thank you. That worshipped someone above, and with that power... Stonehenge was completed. Any which way you look at it, Stonehenge is one of those things that go bump in the night. (laughs) Yeah. Good story. Yeah, thank you. I get messed up by, you know, I don't have a computer, so I got to write everything. Most of which I already knew about, but yeah. (laughs) The count is in on dogs and burgers. Okay, yes. Uh The count for dogs and burgers is officially 63 for dogs, 35 for burgers. Wow. Oh, wow. Hey. I think I was the only dog wow. in there. <laughs> so, so almost 100 people uh-huh. called into the station. Uh-huh. Wow, that's great. I posted links. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That is interesting. I posted links to, to, the, to the show on, on the Franklin website, too, so mm-hmm. some more people yeah. listen to it. Yeah, I, what, what I try to do is make things, you know, interesting for people, um, you know, to participate. And I, it's in the middle of summer, so I thought it was a pretty, pretty well, good... Well, that's very appropriate. So, Alice, Alice Judge is our next reader. Well, today I'm going to read Chapter 1 of my novel that I have finished, and I've been editing for the last 10 years, and it's time to get it out there. And the name of the novel is Murder is Bad Press. Chapter 1. I was talking to my sister Joan when I heard my newspaper editor, Bill Shaw, buzz me on my intercom. Joan, I have to get off. I quickly got off the phone and made strides towards his office. The cops found a dead female in the woods at the corner of Wilson and Pickett. See what it's all about. I grabbed my purse and left with a heavy heart. Was the dead body my missing roommate, Blair Nugent? I hadn't known her well, but I didn't wish her harm. Shaw had hired her when she applied for a writing job. When I was introducing her around the newsroom, she mentioned she needed a place to live. I have an extra bedroom, which I offered her. I needed the extra money a renter would give. The evening of her first night at my townhouse, Shaw had sent her out to cover the town's riding gun club controversy. My new roommate never came home, nor could anyone at the meeting tell me she had been there. Wilson and Pickett Streets were way across town. Fortunate for me, I made the green lights. All of Sandy Ridge's fires were at the site, plus a couple hundred onlookers. I slowly inched my way towards Police Chief Ed Hall. What is it, Chief? Some cute young thing that doesn't look cute anymore, Hall shook his head. Someone wanted to make sure she was dead. I thought of Blair. Can I see the body? Hall shot a look at me. Easy does it, hotshot reporter. The medical examiner is with the body now. You don't get into the crime scene. You know that. I stayed another hour trying to piece overheard conversations together. 
then decided to look for the medical examiner, Dave Berger. I couldn't rest until I knew. Berger didn't seem to be surprised to see me. I knew I'd see you sometime tonight. I won't have anything conclusive on the girl for several days. Just tell me how old she was, and I'll leave leave you alone for a while. I promise. Allison, her face was badly bruised, and there was head trauma. She must have been hit from behind, tried to get up, was hit again several times. Someone in her 20s, I asked, getting impatient. Berger looked at me strangely. Do you need to tell me something? I sat down, telling him I thought it might be my missing roommate. Berger said he didn't know I had a roommate. I told him about Blair getting hired at the courier and how I asked her to be my roommate. I told him about the meeting she was supposed to have covered and how Blair hadn't come home. I told him how guilty I felt about not helping her. He listened intensely. How old is Blair, he asked. Two years younger than me, 24, and her build, asked Berger, shapely. I thought back of how I saw the guys at the courier practically salivating when looking at her. He smiled. Well, continue to look for Blair, Allison. I stared at Berger. He put his hand on my shoulder in a comforting gesture. The victim must be 50 pounds overweight. 50 pounds? Are you sure? Berger chuckled. I know shapely when I see it, and this girl is not. She's heavy. Go home. Your roommate will show up, and hopefully you'll find out who this Jane Doe is. The medical examiner paused. Don't share this information with Hall, or I could lose my job. I nodded. Leaving Berger, I looked at my watch. It was 6.30. Mother would be livid. I had been roped into going over her house for dinner, I hopped into my car and burned rubber. If I was lucky, she would give me the silent treatment all evening, but Mother never missed a chance to zing me. She really got irritated when I maintained my composure, which I vowed to do tonight. Speeding over to Mother's house, my mind wandered to Ronnie, my mother's newest. They had met at an AA meeting. She had gotten into the sauce pretty good when Dad died. It seemed ironic at the time since Dad had been an alcoholic and treated her badly when he drank. She vowed never to touch the stuff. Mother hadn't had much of a life with Dad. Joan and I both knew that. Although in the end, when Dad was diagnosed with cancer, they had appeared to come to a truce in their fighting and made the best of what was to be. Mother started to go to Eleanor, and Dad stopped drinking and went to AA. When Dad died, Mother changed. She started dating right away. I suppose she was lonesome, although Joan and I spent a lot of time with her. Once a dowdy dresser, now she wore short skirts and tops exposing cleavage. Needless to say, she attracted men. Every night she'd go by hopping. Joan and I thought it was grief at first— Then we thought it might be midlife crisis. We waited for her to change back to the mother we knew, which wasn't that great, but at least we knew what we had to deal with. That hadn't happened so far. Even though mother had met Ronnie at an AA meeting, lately I got the idea they didn't go any longer, and sometimes I smelled liquor on mother's breath. 
I was musing over this when a horn behind me broke my reverie. The light was green, and I needed to get to the business at hand. She had indicated she had good news to tell me. I wasn't sure I was up to any news my mother might have. Mother didn't answer the door at first. She did that sometimes. On the third ring, she opened the door and stared at me. I couldn't help it, I said. They found a girl's body, and Shaw wanted me to cover it. In fact, I'll have to leave early to go back to the newspaper and write it up for tomorrow's edition. My mother reluctantly moved aside so I could come in the house, but I felt her frozen stare on my back as I went into the living room. Roney was well on his way to feeling no pain. His eyes were bloodshot, and he weaved almost like he was dancing as he came over to kiss me on the lips. It was a wet, sloppy beer kiss. Ugh. We started without you since she didn't call, said Mother peevishly, determined not to let her get me. I told her I was glad they had and sat on the couch. I wondered if I would hear her good news before or after she ate. I hoped after, since I was hungry. Mother offered me some scallops wrapped in bacon. Hmm, fancy. I think I'll save my appetite. I made meatloaf, Ronnie's favorite, she told me again. As an aside, she added, I know you like it, too. Great, I moved towards the dining room, aware of the hunger noises emitting from me. They followed my mother taking Ronnie's arm. I never liked it when I saw Ronnie sitting in Dad's spot at the head of the table, but brushed my feelings off and concentrated on the meatloaf, mashed potatoes, salad, and broccoli. It was delicious, and I did justice. Mother made a point of having to warm our plates up in the microwave. I tried to stay calm. I refused Mother's apple pie. She and Ronnie had two slices. Ronnie kept complimenting my mother on the dinner until I thought I would gag. The freeloader never took my mother out for an evening. She always cooked. I started to clear the dishes. My mother asked me to stay put. We can do that later, she said. Ronnie and I want to tell you our good news. I put on a false smile. Mother put her hand over Ronnie's. You know that I have been very lonely since your father died, she began. Oh, gosh, they are going to get married. I need someone, something. I need something to occupy my time. I nodded, hoping I looked encouraging. So Ronnie and I are going to open a health club. A health club? Was she crazy, I thought? Yes, Ronnie's got some great ideas, and Sandy Ridge doesn't have anything but the YMCA or YWCA that they could. So this could bring the town up to speed with the rest of the world. What could I say? Ronnie and... Mother, were excited. Uh, when do you anticipate this taking place? Have you thought this through? Who's going to run the club? Well, Ronnie and I are looking at land now. Ronnie will hire trainers to work out with clients. His name has clout in the field with his winning competitions and all. Yeah, how many years ago, I thought. I'll do the bookkeeping and be the receptionist. It will be fun, Mother rattled on. Ronnie leaned across his plate and kissed my mother. People are health conscious these days, but they need some direction to get into shape. That will be my job, he said proudly. Does that mean they'll stop drinking, I kept thinking? 
Both Ronnie and my mother looked at me expectantly. I thought frantically of what to say. You certainly have surprised me. Ronnie got up and poured another beer. He filled my mother's wine glass. My mother didn't notice my pensive look. Well, it will be a while yet before things get started. Ronnie wants to be sure the land we buy is in good shape, with plenty of foot traffic and parking area. Yes, that would be important. I looked at my watch. Oh, look at the time. I do have to get back to the newspaper. I'll just clear these things, put them in the dishwasher, and then I'll leave. You and Ronnie have so much to talk about. I could hear the two chatting away in the dining room while I performed my task in the kitchen. They appeared to be oblivious to me, and when I returned to the dining room to say goodnight, Ronnie was kissing my mother and fondling her breasts. I quickly left, the meatloaf turning sour in my stomach. I rode to the newspaper in a rage. Hercules was going to tap mother's money to finance what he wanted. Well, maybe Joan and I would have something to say about that. I wrote up the story about the murder. Phil Hodge had gotten great photographs. He had put them on my desk, and I wrote quickly, my mind with mother and her loser boyfriend. I finished. The story would be front-page news tomorrow. It was after 1 o'clock when I turned the key to my condo. I called Blair's name outside her room. Nothing. I was bushed and crawled into bed. I had nightmares all night long. I was chasing something, someone. When I caught up to the person, it was mother. She was in workout gear. Very good. <laughs> That's a classic act one. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> a setup. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For things to come. Well, you try to put as much in there and the in the first chapter as you can. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a bit of work you know, because the when we talk about Act 1, et cetera, there's always these expository elements where, number one, you want to establish who everyone is, and number two, you want to get things going. Yes, and you always want to write about what you know. Yep. Well, in terms of exercise, I guess that lets me out, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Our next reader is Carol Belcher. The title of my story is New Shoes. There they were. In the window of a shoe store was the most beautiful pair of red shoes. The color, the small heels, the cutouts around the front. Oh, I loved them. But as my luck goes, I did not have the required number of dollars to make them mine. Every day on my walks to and from my office, I stopped to admire those shoes. One day I looked and, oh no! No shoes in the window. I stood there with my mouth open and feeling like I should cry. On my way home from work, I was determined to find out what happened to my shoes. I went into the store to find the proprietor to ask him where they went. There was a bin in the, of markdowns in the center of the store, and as I glanced toward it, I saw something red. Could it be? I looked, and it was my shoes. They had been marked down and were at a price I could afford. I had to know if they could be a size 8, and they were. Quickly, I pulled them out of the bin, caressing them as I did so. I slipped out of my work shoes and into those bright red ones. 
Immediately, I felt glamorous and giddy. I paid for them and gleefully carried them home. I wore them while I fixed my dinner, did the dishes, and sat down to watch the news. When bedtime came, I carefully put the shoes in the closet. And now, ten years later, they still sit there unworn. <laughs> <laughs> Come. <laughs> that sounds like a case of what over need. <laughs> yes. No, I just never had an opportunity to wear them. Oh. I never had them. Did you click the heels it's, together? It's made up. They say there's no place oh. like home. Yeah. yeah. It's made up. Well, you certainly fooled me. That's a great example, though, of turnabout at the very end. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I love stories that have that nice little button on the end of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Our next reader is Pat Wenanoski. A beautiful lady. Apple Blossom Cologne. Helena Rubinstein's Heaven Scent. My aunt known brought samples each time she visited, as she knew my love of the tiny vials of these two scents. Assorted face and dusting powders and minuscule lipstick samples in varying hues for my mother were tucked deep inside the pockets of her suitcase. A cosmetician at Sutherland's in Lawrence, known Rita Dowling, was my aunt by marriage, married to my grandmother's brother, William Patrick Reardon. Glowingly pretty, radiantly smiling, always leaving a trail of soft perfume. I never entered Sutherland's, Yet I envision her transforming plain women with a dab of rouge on their cheeks, a swirl of powder on their noses, a touch of color on their lips, allowing them to transcend into a momentary dream of loveliness, the very feeling which captured me as I daubed sweet apple blossom behind my ears. Mm. Very good. Very, very descriptive. One of the things you do well, Pat, is that I like is that you write visually, right, right for the senses. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, yeah. Our next reader is Bill Wiley. Hi, I'm Bill, and uh, this is a story about about a gathering I went to at my friend's house where we went uh, swimming and and ate food and hamburgers and hot dogs, and, and at the end the hot dogs were gone. <laughs> 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 this, this this is a poem I wrote about that. It's called The Fourth of July. Hot summer day on this Fourth of July. I feel so happy I could fly. Went, went to a family gathering at my friend's place. I feel like a card. I feel like I could be an ace. Go for a swim. The water was cool. It felt so nice. You could hear me say ooh. Talk to my friend's son about music was grand. Generations apart, music between us will stand. I sit by the pool. Kids splash me with water. Kids stay in the, in the pool. They are like otters. My friend's daughter and son sit by my side. I feel so happy. I smile real wide. Before I came, loneliness I did feel. But being with these people, emotions are real. I may not show the emotions inside. Happiness abounds inside me with pride. Temps in the 90s. The heat goes on. I jump in the pool, my body cools down. My friends, family, and friends, they are so very kind. 
pleasure being with them, impressed in my mind. Food, drinks, and fun, it sure was a hoot. I hope I can return, the fireworks will shoot. As the day goes on, the weariness sets in. When I get home, sleep will win. Very good. I just, yeah. I, I, had to, I had to summarize what... What a happy poem. Yeah. Yeah. Always writing the poems, Bill. <laughs> and I've got one sort of a answer to Carol's one from last month about her listening to the radio. And mine is Back in Time. Hearing the story about listening to the radio as a child made me think of my first experience with electronic entertainment. Being a boomer born in the 40s, yet after the war, I don't remember the radio as much as television, sitting in front of the big wooden cabinet with its 7-inch round screen watching Howdy Doody and Captain Kangaroo, our version of Mr. Rogers, in, the, in black and white. Of course there was the news for Mom and Dad, always watching, and the westerns, Hopalong Cassidy, Roy Rogers, the Cisco Kid, Rawhide, the violence was so different then. The, the bad guys were shot and only fell down or off their horses. No blood was seen, no torture applied. The gun went bang and they fell down. There was also the family shows. Father Knows Best, I Love Lucy, Danny Thomas, Red Skelton, Carol Burnett, and the Dick Van Dyke. And movies, Singing in the Rain, White Christmas, and Holiday Inn then Ed Sullivan and Lawrence Welk, shows we watched as a family. Then technology improved, and I remember getting our first color TV. My mother and I could not wait to see Macy's Parade in color. The Wizard of Oz, where Munchkin Land was spectacular in color. Ed Sullivan and Lawrence Welk continued on. Saturday morning's cartoons, Mickey Mouse, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Bunny, um, and American Bandstand was early Saturday afternoon. I remember trying to dance in front of the television, imitating the older kids on the show. The shows have changed. The violence has increased. What will our children remember as their first experience with electronic entertainment? Some of our shows have inspired technology of today. Star Trek communicators inspired the cell phones. Dick Tracy's wristwatch has inspired today's smart watches. What will be inspired after today's shows? Very good. Mm. What, what does get, what, what get smart uh, inspire Those talking issue? Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's amazing how television has changed in the course of just my lifetime. Oh, absolutely. You know, into what we've watched and yeah, stuff. Yeah, obviously I came a little bit after the radio, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I still remember the old black and white sets. As do I. Similarly, you know, you, Sue and I were talking before the show and we had a similar experience because we were talking about uh, Carol Belcher's last piece. Right. And uh, for me, the arrival of the Zenith Giant Circle 16-inch TV <laughs> yeah. in 1951 was a big deal. Um, and then, of course, later on, color for us came along really quite late, but in the 60s. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, television was a big deal. And I actually got introduced to radio 
through my career. Uh, I worked on two radio soap operas, uh, which were Pepper Young's Family and My Gal Sunday. That's right. And, ah. and so those programs were produced out of Boston all the way into the mid-60s till 1966. And so um, in the very last year of those radio shows, I was one of the engineers who worked on the shows, doing all the sound effects and the editing and everything else. So I got introduced to a very old art form when I was actually only 16 at the time. But I consider it to be a great experience. That must have been fun doing the side effects. Oh, it was. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Toss a watermelon off a ladder and you know somebody jumped. (laughs) (laughs) And I have, sort of continuing in the genre that I started earlier, uh, my piece once again is about writing. First time I talked about creative process, then I talked about how it happens, etc. This time I want to talk about why people become a writer. So when do you become a writer? For me, this question has two answers. The first, when you have to. Years ago, I began writing of necessity as a film director. When you know the script is not working, you have to fix it. Then and there, and the writers might not be on the set to help. So you work with the actors, suggesting, improvising, coming up with more credible or emotional dialogue for the scene. Every good film director understands story and has writing skills. Fixing the dialogue on set is the work of someone called a script doctor. Carrie Fisher, who played Princess Leia on Star Wars, was a brilliant Hollywood script doctor in her later career. Starting from the necessary script doctoring, for me, it was a short journey to just writing the whole thing from scratch. Why not? Writing simplified directing. I was writing for the camera, for the audience, for the stories my client wanted to tell. The second answer to when you become a writer, and this one's more important, when you want to. I discovered that I enjoyed it. For some decades now, I have written all manner of projects. My computer is filled with film scripts, books, short stories, articles, notes, random thoughts, verbal flotsam, and stuff. Among all this, surprisingly, scientific papers and legal contracts. These challenge the writer to exercise language to a high degree of exactitude. Lawyers talk about contracts being perfected with phrases like joint and several, including but not limited to, and one of my favorites, all of the foregoing notwithstanding. The ear of the scientist and attorney hears these words as a form of poetry. Their language resonates, at least to them, in just that way. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Our Declaration of Independence, a legal document, is pure poetry. I wish I wrote that. So I appreciate and enjoy writing, all of it. I write every day. I write for sport. Cogito, there goes soon. I think, therefore I am. I also write, therefore I am immortal. Do you blog? What? Do you blog? No, I don't. Well, this is genre. You don't do? No, actually, I write every week for the, for the studio. So, yes, I actually do. I do a form of blog because I do a front page for our weekly newsletter. The more you write, 
the better writer you'll be. Absolutely. And the more things you see that you can write about. Absolutely. That's why I'm up every morning, and that's why I tackle it before I come in here. Mm. A wonderful writing exercise is to write in someone else's voice. Churchill is a challenge. Right. Having tried, yeah. it is a challenge. But I've, I've sent some correspondence to him in a Churchillian style. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> funny that you say that, because after I was reading all this, I was writing to somebody to invite them to come, and I uh -huh. said, we tried before, and we tried before, and there was no result. And so we tried, and I couldn't use no result again, and I ended up using with no avail. <laughs> I could not think of a way not to that. use that. I love it. I love it. Um, and uh, there are several other writers that I've, I've worked at trying to emulate, if only to improve my craft. Yeah. So it's something that I really strongly recommend. And so I put forth the following challenge. What's the challenge? The, the oh. challenge is... For each of you, each <laughs> rim shot. Thank you. Uh, each of you here to select a favorite author, okay, and put together a page in their language, in their voice. That's going to be fun. Mm -hmm. That is going to be fun. Yeah, I, I you know, I would, I would suggest that it's a great learning experience because it forces you outside your comfort zone a little bit, and it gets you to become a better writer by taking apart what they do with some fidelity and turning it into something new. That's going to be great. We have a month to do it. Yep. Do you accept the challenge? Well, it's going to be hard. I don't think I can do it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's true. You'll have to pick a poet. No, you'll have to pick a poet. Anyone that you like, anyone whose style, even if you think that, they, that you already come near their style, the point is just by thinking about how someone else writes. Right. Yeah, you'll have to write in this style. Do you have a story to tell? We would love to hear it. If you'd like to join the Senior Center writers, just call the Senior Center, 520-4945. For all of our writers, Sue Wade, Bill Wiley, Pat Winiarski, Carol Belcher, Alice Judge, Joe Ewald, Faith Flattity. Thanks for being with us here on Senior Story Hour. Again, I'm Peter J. Remember, be they laced with gravity, levity, wisdom, or whimsy, the meaningful experiences of life become a little larger when you share them, when you take a moment to commit pen to paper and just write. This is FPR.